I always go to a beach and just wander for a few hours and just reflect on Dylan and reflecting on who makes me smile and it also makes me cry. Each anniversary can be a tough day for the parents of the 20 first graders who were killed in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012. It's Wednesday, December 14th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, remembering the victims of the shooting at Sandy Hook. Also ahead, saying the votes just are not there, Governor Baker withdraws his pardon request for Gerald Amaralt and his sister Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. The pair had been convicted of child molestation at their family-run daycare nearly 40 years ago, but the methods used to obtain evidence against them have been long discredited. And we'll have a conversation with Brittany Griner's agent about clearing hurdles to get Griner back into the U.S. It's 4.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Defending champ France advances to the World Cup final to face Argentina Sunday. Moments ago, France defeated Morocco in the semifinal match 2-0. Morocco may have lost, but it is the first ever African and majority Arab nation to get this far into the tournament. The Federal Reserve is continuing its crackdown on high inflation in the U.S. NPR Scott Horsley reports the central bank raised interest rates by another half percentage point today. This was the Fed's seventh rate hike in the last nine months, and it pushed the benchmark borrowing rate, which was near zero in March, to just under 4.5 percent. Rising interest rates make it more expensive to get a car loan, buy a house, or carry a balance on your credit card. The Fed hopes that will help tamp down demand and bring rising prices under control. On Tuesday, the Labor Department reported that consumer prices in November were up 7.1 percent from a year ago. That's the lowest annual inflation rate in 11 months, but it's still far above the central bank's 2 percent target. Today's rate hike was smaller than the previous four, but Fed officials stress that's not a sign they're any less committed to restoring price stability. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Survivors of a mass shooting at a nightclub that serves the area's LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs testified at a congressional hearing today on anti-LGBTQ violence and rhetoric as they pleaded with lawmakers to ban some semi-automatic weapons. The shooter accused in the November 19th massacre, Club Q, killed five people and wounded many more. The nightclub's owner, Matthew Haynes, said level of hate on display the night of the attack is reflected in the sheer number of charges against the shooter. The number 305 alone graphically illustrates just how heinous this act was and how many people in this community were impacted. It also illustrates how much damage can be done when you take hate and access to military-style assault weapons. Putting those together is total carnage. In Newtown, Connecticut, church bells tolled in memory of 26 victims of a mass shooting 10 years ago today. 20 first graders, six adults murdered inside Sandy Hook Elementary School. Davis Denovan of member station WSHU brings us a story of one woman who waited until today to break ground on the headquarters of an animal sanctuary she started in her daughter's memory. Jenny Hubbard is the mother of Catherine Violet Hubbard, who died in the shooting. She says she chose the date for the groundbreaking deliberately. December 14th will always be a somber and sacred day. It marks the day that Catherine died. It also needs to be a day where we're reminded to face forward. And we have to know that there is hope beyond it. Hubbard started the sanctuary in 2013 and got a plot of land from the state a year later. The new $10 million facility will include a library, veterinary clinic, and offices. 20 children and six educators died in the 2012 shooting. 
For NPR News, I'm Davis Donovan. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A brother and sister convicted of molesting children at a Malden daycare back in the 1980s will not be pardoned during Governor Baker's final days in office. The governor withdrew his pardon petition today. He says it's clear that most members of the governor's council oppose pardons for Gerald Amaralt and Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. The pair spent years in prison following an investigation that Baker says was overzealous and used coercive interviewing techniques with children, methods that have since been discredited. The Emerald's lawyer says he's extremely disappointed and calls the decision sad and cruel. People who accused the pair testified to the governor's counsel yesterday that they stand by their allegations of sexual abuse. Boston is taking steps to consider whether the city should provide reparations for black residents. Today, the city council voted to create a commission to study possible reparations to address the harms caused by slavery and racial inequality. The proposal now goes to Mayor Michelle Wu for her approval. Massachusetts residents will get a chance to weigh in on a controversial natural gas pipeline project in Springfield at tonight's Energy Facilities Siting Board meeting. The company proposing the project, Eversource, says it's necessary for gas reliability. But as WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, many in the community say any benefits are vastly outweighed by the negative climate and health impacts. At tonight's hearing, project opponents say they intend to make a few things clear. First, they don't believe this new pipeline is actually needed. And second, because of the climate crisis, they say the state should not be considering any new fossil fuel infrastructure especially infrastructure cited in environmental justice neighborhoods. Naya Tanerowitz is with the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. This is a way for Eversource to entrench reliance and income on fossil fuel infrastructure. A recent clean energy report commissioned by the state said Massachusetts should avoid building new gas infrastructure and instead invest in climate-friendly energy solutions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. It'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows will be around 29 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The high is around 41. Rainy and breezy on Friday, a high of 47 degrees. Rain should give way to partly sunny skies on Saturday, a high of 43. Right now it's 35 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today marks 10 years since 21st grade students and six staff were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. It was a mass shooting that shook the country and inspired a renewed wave of activism. But rather than focus on that day as a singular event, we want to reflect on the lives of some of those who died that day, specifically four students whose parents shared with us how they want their children to be remembered. Jesse was nonstop. I feel like in my life, I am dragging a lot of people around behind me. I always have felt that. But Jesse was literally dragging me. It was pretty amazing. Charlotte just uh, kind of brought us out of our, I guess, our shells a little bit. For her sixth birthday, 
uh, asked her, I said, you know, Charlotte, you know, what would you like to do? Do you want to, do you want a birthday party or do you want an experience? And she's like, oh, I want to experience, which is, you know, so like her. <laughs> and so I said, what would you like to do? And she's like, I just want to go into New York City and walk around and see what's happening. She did a lot of living in those six years. Dylan was definitely the center of our family, you know, possibly because he was the youngest, um, but more likely because of his autism. He wanted to be part of something. So like if the kids were playing kickball, you know, we'd roll the ball to him and all the kids would be going, kick it, Dylan, kick it. He would kick it and then he'd kind of sit down and they'd be like, no, run to first base. And they would like run alongside with him. And he was just having the time of his life. Emily was a very spontaneous, fun-loving, um, creative being. And she could connect with people on their level for how young she was. It was really amazing. I remember one time we were at Costco and you're checking out and Emily's talking. And then I realized she was talking to the worker at Costco that was like helping scan things and stuff like that. And they were having a conversation and I realized this wasn't the first time they had met. Emily had like created this bond. They had talked before and she recognized her and they kind of picked up right where they had left off before. The day before she died, um, I had asked her, I said, Charlie, can I braid your hair? So um, I braided her hair and she went off to school and she came home that night and she's like, oh, mommy, one of the little girls in her class said, I looked so cute with my braids today. Will you braid my hair tomorrow? And I said, oh, I'd love to. You know, I was so excited because I'm like, well, she's not growing up too quickly. <laughs> and um, so that's one of the memories that I really hold on to is that the next morning I got to braid her hair again before she went off to school. I'd been working to get him to have a liquid multivitamin every day and he really didn't like the taste. And that morning was the very first day he actually drank the entire dose of multivitamins. And he was so proud of himself. He had this horrible grimace on his face because of the taste, but he was also so proud and, you know, flapping. He jumped and flapped a lot when he was happy. Jesse's dad was picking him up at the end of the driveway. I walked Jesse out. I turned around to give Jesse a hug and I noticed that he had written in the frost on the side of my car, I love you. One of my last conversations with her, she was pointing to these flowers that we had painted on her wall. And she said, mom, this one's pink with a blue center. And this one's blue with a pink center. Do you see it? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, mom, they're connected. There's connections everywhere. Everything is connected. And those words were incredibly powerful to me and I, I've always remembered them. I think I'm almost in a little bit of shock that it's 10 years. It feels like it was so recent, you know, that he was just here and yet a decade's gone and I can't, I mean, I'm older, the people around me are older and yet my boy is still six and I can't, I can't connect the dots in my head. In some aspects, it seems like it was yesterday, and in others, it, it seems like it's been uh, a lifetime. The first few years, I, we would go to the cemetery, and um, I found myself not wanting, 
or not needing, I guess, maybe to go to the cemetery as often as I used to. I guess I feel her in different places than there. As grief kind of evolves, um, the way that we remember her has too. I always go to a beach and just wander for a few hours and just reflect on Dylan and, and you know, that reflecting on him makes me smile and it also makes me cry. The days leading up to the anniversary are awful, but your body has a funny way of saying enough is enough. And typically by the time that the anniversary rolls around, my body says, it's enough. And I usually feel pretty numb that day. And that reprieve, I look at now as a blessing. I used to be frustrated by it, but now I look at it as an opportunity. You know, Emily's on our mind all the time and we see her everywhere and feel her and... Um having family around and being able to disconnect from the world. It really does just help kind of get us grounded back into what happened and what was lost and what we had and feel sad and feel happy and cry and laugh all at the same time and just hold all those emotions. And to think about our child's life is really what I want to do that day. And I'm grateful that I'm able to do it. There is a ritual that we have not been doing, and that is getting a tree. And uh, that might sound a little harsh for some people, but we had just put up our tree when Jesse was murdered. And I just couldn't find it within myself to do it again. But this year, we put up a tree. And we have plans to decorate the tree together. And so that's gonna be a beautiful thing. So we'll have a tree and this is a big, it's a big forward step for us as a family. That was Scarlett Lewis, the mother of Jesse, Alyssa and Robbie Parker, the parents of Emily, Nicole Hockley, the mother of Dylan, and Joanne Bacon, the mother of Charlotte. Bacon also serves as commissioner of the Sandy Hook Memorial that opened last month in Newtown. It's a granite fountain with each of the 26 victims' names etched in a circle. And she says she has a hope for visitors who stop to pay their respects. I hope that they walk in a circle and say each victim's name. There is a tendency when there's these mass shootings to talk about the Sandy Hook victims as a group, but they were all unique and individual, and they all deserve to be remembered. The victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting are Charlotte Bacon, Daniel Barden, Rachel Devino, Olivia Engel, Josephine Gay, Don Lafferty Hawksprung, Dylan Hockley, Madeline Shu. Katherine Hubbard, Chase Kowalski, Jesse Lewis, Anna Grace Marquez Green, James Mattioli, Grace McDonald, Anne Marie Murphy, Emily Parker, Jack Pinto, Noah Posner, Caroline Previty, Jessica Ricos, Aviel Richman, Lauren Russo, Mary Sherlock, Victoria Soto, Benjamin Wheeler, and Allison Wyatt. 
Alexander Ovechkin made hockey history last night. While playing the Chicago Blackhawks, the forward for the Washington Capitals scored his 800th goal. There's only three players in history who've scored 800 goals now, and Alex Ovechkin is one of them. That's Washington Post sports columnist Barry Sverluga. Last night's game also made Ovechkin the third highest scoring player in the sport's history. Number two is Gordie Howe, who retired at 801 goals. And this year's hockey season is young. Ovechkin could beat that record as soon as tomorrow night when the Caps play the Dallas Stars. Number one is Wayne Gretzky, beloved as the great one to hockey fans. Gretzky retired at 894 goals. But Sverluga says Ovechkin is also on track to beat that record. 894 just seemed like an outlandish total, but he has this knack for being able to put the puck past the goalie and find the back of the net. And he just gets thirstier and thirstier rather than falling off. Even at 37 years old, Ovechkin shows no sign of stopping. Sverluga says he's still averaging more goals per game than Gretzky did. The secrets to Ovechkin's success? Sverluga says it's his smarts for the game at a fast, dangerous shot. He has scored so many goals from the left face-off circle, and it just, you know, you almost can't see it. That area we've kind of labeled over the years as as Ovi's office because it's like he's in a Barcalanger over there just firing these missiles past goalies. That despite the fact that scoring goals has gotten harder since Gretzky retired over 20 years ago. In the 1990s, the score of a typical game might have been 5-4. to four. Now it's more like 3-2, to two, Sverluga says. Cool as these records are, for fans, nothing beats the sight of the great eight, Alex Ovechkin, kissing and hoisting the Stanley Cup above his head. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 35 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, Governor Charlie Baker has withdrawn his pardon request for a brother and sister convicted of child molestation nearly 40 years ago. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bess, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BessBerry.com. And the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at GBFB.org slash WBUR. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down four-tenths of a percent at 33,966. The S&P fell six-tenths of a percent to close at 39.95. And the Nasdaq was off three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 11,171. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow, with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The highs around 41. It'll be rainy and breezy on Friday, a high 47 degrees. The rain should give way to partly sunny skies on Saturday. The high should be around 43. Sunny and 40 degrees on Saturday. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. In a surprise move today, Governor Charlie Baker withdrew his recommendation for pardons in a controversial child sex abuse case that's been debated for decades. The governor's office announced that there was not enough support for the pardons of Gerald Amaralt and his sister, Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. The siblings were convicted of abusing children at their family's daycare in Malden back in the 1980s. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following this story and joins us now. Hi, Deb. Hi, Steve. So what did the governor's office say about this decision to no longer recommend pardons for the Emeralds? Well, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito read a statement at today's meeting of the governor's council, and she said the decision, the reversal really, was made after yesterday's lengthy governor's council hearing on the Emerald pardons. Following yesterday's hearing, it's apparent that there are not sufficient votes from the governor's council to support a a pardon for the Emeralds. Therefore, the governor is withdrawing his pardon petition. Now, the governor had recommended the pardons for the Emeralds last month, saying that he had doubts about the strength of the evidence on which the Emeralds were convicted. As you know, Steve, this case has been litigated for years, and the governor said he reviewed the previous legal rulings, and those raised questions about the techniques that were used to interview the children and whether the children's testimony had been manipulated. So how are the accusers and their families reacting to this about face? Well, I spoke with two people uh, who testified before the governor's council yesterday, Brenda Hurley McCarthy said that her daughter, who is now 42 years old, has never recovered from being abused by the Emeralds at the Felsacre Day School in Malden. Uh, Hurley McCarthy said a pardon would have sent a message that young abuse accusers can't be believed. Our children did not lie. They were not brainwashed. It was not overzealous prosecutors. They want everyone to believe they're innocent. They're not. I also talked with Jen Bennett, who was one of the children who testified against the Emeralds during their trial in the mid-1980s. She's now 44 years old, a mother of three. She called today's reversal by the governor a relief, but Bennett said she's still concerned that the families involved were not notified before Baker announced the pardons. I do thank them for doing the right thing, that I do got to say. I'm still very upset that it, it was handled wrong in the beginning, but they... They did do the right thing this time. So, Deb, what did the Emerald supporters say regarding this decision to withdraw the pardon request from the governor? Well, the Emerald's attorney, James Sultan, uh, said that the governor's decision is terribly disappointing. Finally, they thought they were actually going to get some justice and some relief, and instead they just got a rug pulled out from under them one final time. And it's just... 
it's sad and it's cruel. And Sultan said yesterday's hearing was one-sided in his opinion. He said it was clear most of the counselors were not going to support the pardons. And during today's meeting, after the pardon withdrawals were announced, Counselor Marilyn Devaney, who has said that a friend of hers is among the families who accused the Amaralts, she said she's not sympathetic that Gerald Amaralt, who was called Tukey, uh, would continue to be on parole and wear an ankle bracelet to monitor his movements. The child victims live forever with the memories of the physical and mental pain, the sexual assaults and threats by Turkey. They're never forgotten. They live a life sentence. Now, did uh, the attorney for the Emerald say what uh, they will do now? Well, James Sultan said that the Amaralts are crushed, and he said it's not likely that they'll apply for clemency again. Gerald Amaralt's been out of prison since 2004. His parole is up next year. Both he and his sister Cheryl will continue to be required to register as sex offenders. Okay, WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Reportedly, Brittany Griner can still dunk a basketball. That's after 10 months of what the U.S. government describes as wrongful detainment in Russian prisons. She's now back in the United States. But we only know so much about what she experienced and her future in basketball. So we've reached out to her agent, Lindsay Kagawa-Colas, who saw Brittany Griner at a military base in Texas. Lindsay, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So, Lindsay... What can you tell us about how Brittany Griner is doing now? You know, she's just been through so much since February when she was detained in Russia. You know, she is doing really, really well. She's so happy. She is so grateful. And she's really benefiting uh, from all of the resources that the U.S. government provides to someone like her who has been through so much and is now into this next phase of reintegration. But I think the most important thing is that the things that she's doing now, it, it's all her choice. Everything is voluntary. As you heard, she, she did hit the basketball court, but it, she was also getting to do other things that were really important to her, like see her family and obviously spend time with her wife who fought so hard to get her home. You know, most of us have, of course, never had the experience that she's had, but I'm curious, what does the day-to-day look like for her? Can you give us just a little peek into maybe some of those choices that she's making, some of those things she enjoys? The big thing for us is just being able to create a world for her where she's going to really get to do what she wants. And it it really is a new world. And one of the first things that we talked about, and we've talked about it every day since, is her commitment to using her platform to get other wrongful detainees, people like Paul Whelan, home. She asks about him constantly. She's never once asked to be famous or that's not her desire. That's not her goal. But here she is. And so now that she has this power, now that she has, I think, this visibility and this influence, she wants to use it to help people. I know that it's early still, but I'd like to ask you, have you had the opportunity to speak with Brittany about what the experience of the last nine, ten months has been like for her, how she was treated in Russia and the prison system? We did. And we were very, very proactive So our team of people in Russia were very, very personally committed to her health and wellness. And and again, I'm going to leave it to Brittany to tell the stories, but she has a lot to say. She's got a lot of stories to tell. She's got a lot to share. But I know she's very, very grateful to the folks who looked after her there. 
As I'm sure you know, there are a lot of questions swirling about what Brittany Griner's future in her sport will be, given the fact that she's a two-time Olympic gold medalist and an undisputed star of the league. And the new season starting in May. Has she said whether she plans to play basketball again? No, you know, she hasn't. She hasn't made that specifically clear yet. That's not something that we've put any pressure on her on. So I'm going to leave that for her to share. Everything in the world has changed for her, but a lot has changed for the WNBA too. You and other insiders have spoken out that WNBA athletes play in places like Russia and Turkey because they got paid significantly more there than in the U.S. So what needs to happen for salaries for WNBA players to rise to the point where more athletes can make a living, the living that they want to here in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. It's investment. And when I say investment, I don't just mean give the players bigger salaries. This is an interconnected world, right? The economy in and around women's sports and the WNBA, it's all connected to choice and to priority. None of this stuff happens alone. It's all interconnected and everybody can play a part in that, but it always comes down to choices and choices reflect values. And I think those values are starting to shift. People are starting to understand the value of that investment. We've been speaking with sports agent Lindsay kagawa Colas. Among her clients is Brittany Greiner. Lindsay, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. And Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu slash events. Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says America is in trouble. Social media was supposed to connect us. It was supposed to make it effortless to talk to everybody, anyone. And, but by 2014, it was clear, no, it's actually fragmenting us into little bubbles, little shards that we can't communicate. And he says that's made America's institutions stupid. Can we reverse course? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Two years ago, the very first COVID-19 vaccination was administered in New York, and critical care nurse Sandra Lindsay received the first shot. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, two years later, Lindsay is still feeling hopeful. The photograph of Sandra Lindsay receiving that first vaccine has become so famous, she says when she's at the grocery store, people still stop her. Just saying thank you. You are courageous, and so we felt courageous, and we felt inspired to go ahead and get vaccinated. COVID is now surging again, along with flu and RSV, and booster rates are low, including among the elderly, who are at higher risk for severe infection. Lindsay, who now does public health advocacy at Northwell Health, encourages people to protect each other. If you're going to see grandma over the holidays, she says, make sure grandma is boosted and everyone who's visiting her is, too. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. President Biden told dozens of African leaders gathered at the White House today the U.S. is committed to supporting every aspect of Africa's future growth. 
Biden is pitching the U.S. as a reliable partner to promote democratic elections that will be happening on the African continent next year. Biden told the crowd the $55 billion the U.S. is committing to put toward growing health care, infrastructure, and technology in Africa is just the beginning. Trade runs on reliable infrastructure to support and secure resilient supply chains. And improving Africa's infrastructure is essential to our vision of building a stronger global economy that can better withstand the kinds of shocks that we've seen in the past few years. Africa has become a key battleground in a fraught competition between the U.S. and China to help modernize the continent, with Beijing investing heavily, outpacing the U.S. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Officials with the Boston Finance Commission want the city to delay finalizing a new five-year contract for school transportation. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, they want the state inspector general's office to examine the bidding process. At issue is the fact the bus contract for Boston Public Schools only received one bid. Matt Cahill, the executive director of the Boston Finance Commission, says the school district's requirement that bidders have experience with three entities that are at least half the size of Boston Public Schools could have restricted competition. If there's an explanation as to why they chose that, then that would be great. But as of yet, we haven't heard an explanation. It just said, you know, we had consultants say this is what was best for us. I don't see how that's best for the city when you're eliminating competition. Boston school officials say the bid invitation was collaboratively written to ensure the school bus vendor is well positioned to meet the needs of Boston students. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The governor is establishing a cybersecurity response team amid what he calls a growing number of cybersecurity incidents across the nation. The job of the newly anointed Massachusetts Cyber Incident Response Team will be to protect the state's technology networks and to better respond to a cyber attack if one occurs. The new team will be part of the Executive Office of Technology Services and Security. An Attleboro man is facing charges based on evidence from a decades-old previously untested rape kit. Patrick Avila is accused of sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl while she slept in a basement in Fairhaven back in 2001. Avila was arraigned yesterday and posted bail. He's due back in court in February. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries. Free Sundays and new museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow. Slight chance of some rain in the afternoon. The highs around 41 degrees. Rainy and breezy on Friday, a high 47. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Energy from nuclear fusion has been a part of science fiction for generations. Doctor, we have a successful fusion reaction. Stark Tower is about to become a beacon of self-sustaining clean energy. Ready for some power? Okay. Spock detonated a cold fusion device. What are you doing, Doc? I need fuel. Well, yesterday, Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm announced that scientists had reached a real-life breakthrough in fusion. This moves us one significant step closer to the possibility of zero-carbon, abundant fusion energy powering our society. Well, how close are we? NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield is here to answer that question. Hey, Jeff. Hi there. I remember when I was in high school, I heard about fusion as kind of this magic bullet to solve the world's energy problems. That was decades ago. Why has it taken so long to reach this point? Right. So if you'll let me do a little nuclear physics 101 here, I can explain. Go for it. it. Basically, fusion is the act of sticking two lightweight atoms together. Mm -hmm. And at their cores, atoms have protons. Protons are positively charged. And so just like the end of a magnet, they'll repel each other. Mm -hmm. So to push them together takes a lot of energy. It takes heating to hundreds of millions of degrees. And so that creates a situation where, like, you can't do it on Earth because it'll just melt any box you put it in. So you have to suspend it in magnetic fields and or use lasers. It just gets more and more complicated. And that's really it. There's no one thing, but it's just a really tough problem. Why is it worth the effort to solve this really tough problem? What makes it such a great accomplishment? Well, what you get out the other end, if you can make it work, is pretty much clean, limitless energy. Fusion, star power. Literal star, star power, power. Literal star power. Because the sun runs on fusion. So we have another source of nuclear energy, which is conventional nuclear energy, but it creates nuclear waste. It feels kind of dangerous. It's That's hard. splitting atoms instead of shoving them together, right? It, exactly, exactly. And um, the problems there, we know, I think, all too well, and we struggle with them. Fusion is something where the reactors could be shut off much more easily, and they would produce less nuclear waste. So it feels both safer and cleaner. And is this breakthrough that was announced yesterday the achievement of all these dreams people have had for decades? Well, yes and no. So so let me explain. This was done using a giant laser facility. And basically what they did was they took 192 laser beams and they crushed a tiny pellet of fusion fuel. And they did indeed get more energy out than the laser beams put in. And that's a huge breakthrough for the field. The problem is that those lasers have to be plugged into the wall. And so <laughs> it turns out that the energy that you need to get out of the wall is much, much higher. So they, in fact, got probably a little under 1% of the energy overall that they had to put into the entire system. But it is one significant step forward, according to the energy secretary. So what's the next step and the step after that? What does the path ahead look like? Well, there's several different approaches to fusion, and they all have their challenges, and they're all struggling. And for the laser thing, you'd have to have a much more efficient laser, obviously. You'd have to be able to do it many times a second, which means firing the laser over and over again. You'd have to have better targets. There's like just this laundry list of technical and engineering achievements you need to get through. And Frankly, it's going to take decades. So it's not going to be the solution to climate change that we're looking for if we want to cut emissions in half by the end of the decade, which is the Biden administration's goal. But is there a reason to be hopeful about this? You know, the thing about it is fusion's a really tough technical problem. And 
in some sense, climate change is the same thing. Climate change itself is a very tough problem that there's no silver bullet. You just got to keep working at it. So I think the one thing fusion shows is when humans work on a tough problem, they can make progress. And that's why I take away from it. There's not always a magic solution. That doesn't mean we can't get stuff done. NPR's Jeff Brumfield, thanks for the optimism and the reality check. Thank you. Iran has been kicked out of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. The Biden administration argued that it should have been an easy call. Iranian women have been protesting for their basic human rights and have faced a brutal crackdown from authorities. But Iran was elected to the commission, and some countries don't like the precedent the U.S. is now setting, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says Iran's membership was a stain on the credibility of the main U.N. body that promotes gender equality. Today we removed that stain. The United States stood with these women. We knew this was the right thing to do. Twenty-nine members of the United Nations Economic and Social Council voted to expel the Islamic Republic of Iran from the Commission on the Status of Women. Eight opposed the move and 16 abstained. Iran's ambassador, Amir Saeed Irvani, accused the U.S. of undermining the rule of law in the U.N. system. Today we are witnessing yet another evidence of United States hostile policy toward Iranian people. China, Russia, and others pointed out that Iran was elected to the Commission on Women, and they blasted the U.S. for trying to change the rules. China's ambassador charged the U.S. with, quote, naked bullying, hypocrisy, and double standards. Israel's ambassador, Gilad Erdan, charged the U.N. with hypocrisy, saying many members are whitewashing the crimes of oppressive governments. Iran should never have received a seat on the Commission on the Status of Women. This is only part of the moral distortion that has made the U.N. so impotent. He said countries should do much more to support Iranian women who are demanding basic rights. The protests were sparked in September by the death of Masa Amini, a Kurdish-Iranian woman known as Gina to her family, who was in custody of Iran's morality police. Since then, several hundreds of protesters have been killed and thousands arrested. Iran has also begun to execute some protesters, alarming human rights activists like Hadi Gayemi. We've had two young men killed in a matter of uh, four days during the past week, and there are nearly 20 people already have been through the sentencing and could be executed anytime. And I'm afraid if uh, they manage to get away with it, they could go up to hundreds of executions in the coming weeks and months. Gayemi, who runs the New York-based Center for Human Rights in Iran, says he's also getting more troubling reports about sexual violence against women and girls now in jail in Iran. He calls the vote to expel Iran from the Commission on Women a, quote, minimal act and wants to see a more concerted diplomatic push against the Iranian regime. Lou Charbonneau of Human Rights Watch echoes that. Let's not kid ourselves. Today's justified action by UN member states is a far cry from the real accountability we need, real accountability for those who are responsible for the security forces' lethal violence against protesters after the death of Masa Amini and the recent execution of protesters after hasty, unfair trials. U.S. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield told reporters that she will press for more action at the UN. We have to continue to put pressure on Iran because Iran is continuing to attack women in the streets. Uh, women are still in jail. 
uh, and the rest of this uh, United Nations needs to stand up and call on Iran to cease uh, the actions that they're taking. A White House statement says that the recent executions of Iranian prisoners only strengthens the U.S. resolve. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A storm making its way across the country today has spawned tornadoes in Louisiana and Mississippi and threatens other southern states. The storm has killed at least two people and damaged dozens dozens of homes and businesses. A year ago, tornadoes ripped across the country's heartland, and one of the hardest-hit towns is still picking up the pieces. Derek Operly of WKMS reports from Mayfield, Kentucky, where a tornado last year killed 24 people and injured hundreds more. Gray late-fall clouds hang over this small western Kentucky town, and nearly everywhere you go in Mayfield, you hear this. Those are construction crews, some still taking down damaged buildings and others putting up new ones. Last year, the tornado wiped out the city's downtown. The carpet of two-by-fours, tree branches, and broken glass has been cleaned up, but it's still so empty. Even Mayor Kathy Onan gets lost in the sea of blank foundations. When I drive, it is disorienting sometimes still because our landmarks are completely gone. City Hall is still standing, but damaged, so the mayor is working out of a strip mall. This tornado was one of 69 spawned by the storm that killed more than 90 people in five states. The twister that hit Mayfield carved one of the longest tracks in U.S. history and took out thousands of homes and businesses in the town alone. Onan says it's been difficult to see through the devastation, but all those blank foundations downtown are filled with potential. What we're building now is a backdrop for my grandchildren's lives and the lives to come. Though the process has been slow, there's been a freeze on building permits in a historic area downtown so the community can plan what it wants for the future. It's set to end later this month, and Onan expects to hear a lot of hammers this spring. But for many, the recovery process isn't moving fast enough. At a deli and butcher shop that the tornado just missed, longtime Mayfield resident Beverly Benefield still cries when she thinks of how much work has to be done for her hometown to recover. I feel it's going very slow, very slow. I'm very... uh, disappointed in the uh, progress, you know, but of course everything, it takes time. Many tornado survivors are still without permanent homes. Some are couch surfing or staying with relatives. All right, so right here is my room. Um, Pretty much where I sleep. 21-year-old Dakota Moore now lives in one of about two dozen trailers, tiny houses, and shipping container homes that a local nonprofit set up at a campground. The night the tornado hit, Moore and his mother were working at Mayfield Consumer Products. That's the candle factory that collapsed and trapped more than 90 people inside. He remembers the moment it happened. And my ears ringing, I don't hear anything else. All of a sudden, I just feel this push of just wind behind me. Moore wasn't hurt, but lost his job and his apartment. Now a year later, he sees a path forward through all of the loss. And I'm using that right there to better myself and help me in my future. This week, Moore is taking the final steps to get his GED and he's been working at a dollar store to save for what he hopes will be a down payment on a newly constructed home in town. The rebuilding, regardless of its pace, can't repair the hole in Zachary Daniels' heart. He lost his dad in the candle factory collapse. Sometimes I don't believe it. I can't call and pick the phone. He visited his father's grave for the one-year anniversary of the tornado and his death. Standing beside the headstone, Daniel said he does think the city is going to be okay. I believe we're going to be 
in this career, so I'm believing my team. Just blocks away from the cemetery, the construction crews are working to make that belief a reality. For NPR News, I'm Derek Operly in Mayfield, Kentucky. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 34 degrees in Boston at 448. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from a Wall Street Journal reporter about the parents behind FTX's downfall. That's ahead here on WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Downtown Crossing Boston, your holiday destination featuring the Snowflake Crossing Ice Festival, December 16th and 17th, downtownboston.org. The Jewish Arts Collaborative with Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, an innovative celebration at the Museum of Fine Arts, December 15th, jartsboston.org. And Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, kidney disease, and more, Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The high around 41. Rainy and breezy on Friday, a high 47. The rain should give way to partly sunny skies on Saturday. The high around 43. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story, live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. Sam Bankman-Fried, the former CEO of the crypto exchange FTX, is in a lot of trouble. The 30-year-old faces multiple criminal and civil charges related to the company's collapse. Prosecutors say he defrauded customers and investors for years. Now, Bankman-Fried's troubles have also shifted some attention to his parents, Joseph Bankman and Barbara Fried, though so far there is no evidence that either of them were engaged in any criminal or otherwise improper activity that led to the crypto exchange's implosion. Bankman and Freed have both been prominent professors at Stanford Law School here in California. And Justin Baer wrote about them and their roles in FTX this week in the Wall Street Journal. He joins us now to tell us more about his reporting. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. Okay, so just before we begin, full disclosure on my part, I went to Stanford Law School and I remember both Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed, they were very well-liked, very popular professors. I took tax law from Professor Freed. 
But I'm going to start by having you tell us more about them. How would you describe these two individuals? Yeah, so they've both been at Stanford Law School since the late 1980s. Um, but it's probably fair to say that they're more than just faculty members on, on campus. They were often described by colleagues and friends over the years as, as these sort of central figures, these pillars, both kind of culturally there, but also intellectually. Can you describe what you learned about how Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed raised their son? It, it was a little unusual, wasn't it? Yeah, I think um, they had discovered at an early age that, that Sam and, and his brother really enjoyed having more adult conversations. And so from that point on, they, they really sought to um, cultivate that with them. You know, uh, Joe and Barbara were, were pretty well known on campus as hosting these um, Sunday dinner parties with their friends and colleagues and you know, sort of interesting people that were visiting. As you might guess, many other kids didn't necessarily want to talk about politics or, or, or religion or, or current events uh, and would excuse themselves and go watch TV in the other room. But, but Sam and, and his brother would always, almost always remain behind and they would participate and hold their own in, the, in those conversations. And based on what you've learned so far in your own reporting, how would you describe Bankman's and Freed's involvement in FTX? Like how deeply were they involved? I think in Barbara's case, she wasn't really involved in any any meaningful way. Joe, different story. He was actually a paid employee for, for some time, a little less than a year, um, focused a lot on their philanthropic efforts. He sat in on meetings in Washington with lawmakers, as uh, with, with his son, as they were either lobbying on behalf of the company or, or maybe the crypto industry itself. And, um, you know, as, as the situation began to turn dire, he, you know, he became um, a bit of a liaison between other people of the company and, and the lawyers and, and his son. And then, of course, there's this luxury property that they had um, been using when they were visiting Sam in the Bahamas was, you know, reportedly that they, the parents were listed um, on the deed. And so um, that's one unresolved element there about how they obtain that and um, why they still appear to hold it. Also, Bankman, I mean, he he very much helped shape this image, FTX's image, as this company that would try to give, you know, low-income people access to the financial system, right? Like, as an academic, I know that Bankman was very interested in the inequities in the financial system. Yes. Um, no, that was sort of central to his his official role within FTX. He was primarily focused on, on various philanthropic efforts and that idea low-income folks getting bank accounts, um, being able to transfer funds to their loved ones uh, in other parts of the world. He was leading that effort. What sort of legal liability could Joe Bankman or Barbara Freed potentially face in the wake of this collapse, you think? Yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly un, unresolved, right? We don't know yet what involvement they had in the areas that have ultimately found um, FTX and the sister trading firm Alameda in, in big trouble, right? You know, the central allegation is that they used customer funds on FTX in exchange in order to uh, cover up 
losses and other issues at at this trading firm Alameda. And so one thing that's unresolved is is to what extent, you know, what knowledge that his parents had um, about that prior to it being revealed, you know, in early November as things were imploding. That was Justin Baer of The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for your reporting and for joining us. Thanks for having me. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Fidelity, with Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From the brilliant minds behind Plowy McPlowface and Sir Plows a Lot, it's the 2022 Ohio Turnpike Name a Snowplow Contest. This year, the second annual naming contest drew more than 5,000 submissions. Ohio Turnpike officials picked out the top 50 names and put them to a public vote. And now we have the winners. Last year, there was Snow Force One. This year, Ohio Thaw Enforcement will be patrolling the turnpike. Last year was Star Wars heavy. This year, names like Darth Blader gave way to 90s movie references like You're Killing Me, Squalls, and The Big Leplowski. If you don't know, we'll let you discover for yourself what movies Plow Chicka Plow Wow refers to. Uh, we don't recommend you watch them at work. Farzana Med, executive director of the Ohio Turnpike, has his favorites. <laughs> Blizzard Wizard. <laughs> The Blizzard of Oz. Uh, Cleopatra is a good one. Yeah, Cleopatra is clever. So is Control Salt Delete. Ahmed says there is a serious reason for giving snowplows funny names. If people see that snowplow as, as more than just uh, another vehicle on the road, uh, because we are creating these naming contests and perhaps they become, a, they become a little bit more aware of it, then they will make an effort to stay behind that snowplow, not crowd the plow. And uh, that will just improve safety for everybody on the road. So if you are on the Ohio Turnpike and you see the big Leplowski clearing the lanes, you can point and laugh all you like, but please, please just do not try to pass it. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication Designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from BritBox, for lovers of British TV, offering a varied selection of British mysteries, dramas, comedies, and other programming. Gift subscriptions available at britbox.com gifting. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Just a minute before 5 o'clock, 
Ahead, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by a half a percentage point today as it continues its crackdown on high inflation. That's up next here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Life of Pi at the ART, the spectacular, award-winning play based on the beloved novel, now through January 29th, amrep.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I wouldn't um, see the committee cutting rates until we're confident that inflation is moving down in a sustained way. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell says Americans should not expect interest rates to fall anytime soon. It's Wednesday, December 14th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up today, the Fed raised interest rates by another half percentage point. Also ahead, after the Sandy Hook shooting 10 years ago today, gifts poured into the community from art to teddy bears. Officials shared what they could, and now the rest has become part of the town's memorial to victims. And Tunisia appears to be losing its democratic gains. Clouds roll in tonight. We'll be getting some rain late tomorrow. Sunshine returns over the weekend. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. President Biden is promising hundreds of millions of dollars in new investments across Africa. This as delegations from 49 African nations meet in Washington for the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. NPR's Asma Khalid reports. Biden spoke about his commitment to promoting trade and entrepreneurship in Africa. When Africa succeeds, the United States succeeds. Quite frankly, the whole world succeeds as well. He announced a new memo of understanding to open up additional trade opportunities between the U.S. and Africa, and he specifically spoke to boosting energy and infrastructure in the region. Improving Africa's infrastructure is essential to our vision of building a stronger global economy that can better withstand the kinds of shocks that we've seen in the past few years. Biden also announced plans to expand access to reliable Internet across Africa. Asma Khalid, NPR News. In congressional testimony today, survivors of last month's deadly mass shooting at a Colorado gay nightclub appealed for an assault weapons ban. NPR's M- Melissa Block reports. Michael Anderson was bartending at Club Q that night. He said this country's, quote, unhealthy obsession with assault rifles, coupled with rising anti-LGBTQ extremism, has had predictable and deadly consequences. To the politicians and activists who accuse LGBTQ people of grooming children and being abusers, shame on you. Another Club Q survivor, James Slaw, was shot that night. At the hearing, he had to prop up his wounded arm when he was sworn in. Hate rhetoric from politicians, religious leaders, and media outlets is at the root of the attacks, like at Club Q, and it needs to stop now. The Colorado nightclub shooting left five people dead and more than a dozen injured. Melissa Block, NPR News, Washington. 
France has moved into the World Cup final, beating Morocco 2 to nothing. NPR's Tom Goldman has details from Doha. Morocco surged through this World Cup, beating some of Europe's most prominent national teams. But it couldn't get past the best Europe has to offer, France. Not even with most of the 68,000-plus fans at Albite Stadium urging on Morocco's Atlas Lions. France scored in the fifth minute and then again in the 79th, and in between played magnificent defense to withstand with pressure for Morocco. At the end, many Moroccan fans wept, but also cheered the team that gave them such pride as it became the first African and majority Arab nation to get to the World Cup semifinals. Now France plays Argentina in Sunday's final with a chance to be the first back-to-back champion since Brazil in 1962. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Doha. For the seventh time this year, the Federal Reserve has raised its key interest rate, this time by half a point. Wall Street, the Dow closed down 142, the Nasdaq off 85. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Governor Baker has withdrawn his controversial request to pardon two people convicted in a notorious child sex abuse case dating back decades. The governor said there was not enough support for the pardons of Gerald Amaralt and his sister Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. They were convicted of abusing children at their family's Fells Acres Daycare Center in Malden back in the 1980s. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The Emerald's attorney, James Sultan, called the governor's decision sad and cruel and said it's not likely they'll seek clemency next year when they're eligible again. Every time they put themselves out there and expend emotional energy on trying to get some justice, it takes a huge toll on them and on the whole family. And boy, um, I, I, I wouldn't advise them to go through this again. Accusers and their families said they were relieved by the governor's withdrawal and that a pardon would have sent a message that young abuse victims can't be believed. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Meanwhile, the governor's council has unanimously voted to give Ramadan Shabazz uh, the opportunity for parole. Shabazz was convicted of first-degree murder more than 50 years ago after killing two men in a Dorchester armed robbery. Governor Baker requested the council commute his sentence from first-degree murder to second-degree murder. Baker says that Shabazz has taken ownership of his crimes and has become a mentor to others in prison. Overdose deaths may be declining slightly in Massachusetts. That's after they hit a record high last year. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports. Preliminary numbers from the state's Department of Public Health show a 1.5% decrease in fatal overdoses in the first nine months of this year. That's after a 9.4% increase last year. Dr. Sarah Wakeman at Mass General says making naloxone or Narcan and treatment available everywhere would help. Whether that's a hospital, a primary care office, an emergency room on the street, and we need to be um, using every tool that has been shown to be effective, and that includes things like overdose prevention sites. Fentanyl in cocaine, pills, and other drugs was in 94% of fatal toxicology reports so far this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The highs around 41. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com.
It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Americans are starting to see some relief from soaring prices. But that has not stopped the Federal Reserve from continuing its crackdown on inflation. Today, the Fed raised interest rates by another half percentage point. It's part of a drive to boost borrowing costs at the fastest pace in decades. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain. Hey there. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, yesterday we learned that annual inflation in November was the lowest it's been in almost a year So then why is the Fed still raising interest rates? Inflation has come down uh, from a four-decade high of 9% back in June to just over 7% last month. That's the good news. The bad news is 7% is still about three and a half times as high as inflation is supposed to be. For decades before the pandemic, we were used to prices rising just 2% per year or less. And Fed Chairman Jerome Powell told reporters this afternoon he and his colleagues are determined to get back to that. It boils down to how long do we think this process is going to take. And, of course, we're, we welcome these, these, uh, these better inflation reports for the last two months. They're very welcome. It's good to see progress, but let's just understand we have a long ways to go to get back to price stability. This is the seventh time the Fed has raised interest rates in the last nine months. Uh, its benchmark rate's gone from near zero in March to just under 4.5%. And it's likely to go a little bit higher next year. Uh, today's rate hike was smaller than the last four, but Fed officials insist that doesn't mean they're any less committed to getting prices under control. So, Scott, what impact is that having on inflation and the broader economy? Higher borrowing costs make it more expensive to get a car loan or a home mortgage or to carry a balance on your credit card. And that is designed to tamp down consumer demand. We are seeing the effects of that already in some of the more sensitive parts of the economy, like the housing market. And over time, those effects are likely to spread. The central bank is now forecasting slower economic growth next year and somewhat higher unemployment. But Powell stressed the job market's still really strong, so he's hopeful that we're not going to see a huge number of job cuts. The reports we get from the field are that uh, companies are very reluctant to lay people off. Other than the tech companies, which is a, you know, a story unto itself, generally companies want to hold on to the workers they have because it's been very, very hard to hire. That doesn't sound like a labor market where a lot of people will need to be put out of work. In fact, Powell says the job market is too strong right now, and that's pushing up wages at a rapid rate. Now, ordinarily, we think of wage gains as being a good thing, but they can feed into inflation, and it's not in anybody's interest to get a 5% raise on paper, only to have it gobbled up by 7% inflation. Yeah, no kidding. So one could call 2022 the year of high inflation. So tell us, what is in store for 2023? We are definitely seeing some progress in in some areas. Gasoline prices have come down. Uh, The price of used cars and other products have come down as we started to work out some of those pandemic kinks in the supply chain. What really worries Powell and his colleagues now is the rising price of services, and that's largely driven by labor costs, which tend to be sticky. The goods inflation has turned pretty quickly now. After not turning at all for a year and a half, now it seems to be turning. But there's an expectation, really, that the services inflation will, will not move down so quickly, so that we may have to raise rates higher. Just to give you a couple of examples, the price of haircuts is up nearly 7% in the last 12 months. The price of dry cleaning is up nearly 8%. And that's important because services other than housing and energy account for about a quarter of all consumer spending. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Today marks 10 years since the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. For some former Sandy Hook students, their experience that day sent them down a path of activism. Davis Donovan of member station WSHU followed the journey of a few young survivors. 
Maggie Labanca was in third grade at Sandy Hook Elementary School in 2012 when 20 students and six educators died. Among the victims was her friend and next-door neighbor, seven-year-old Daniel Barden. So I met him when I was three. We would always play outside. We always would draw chalk on the, on the driveway and play in our houses. It was that golden childhood that everyone talks about. I mean, I had a best friend that I would just see every day, but now I don't. Daniel Barden's older sister, Natalie, remembers him waiting for the bus with Maggie. They were very, very close. We used to always joke, like, we'd tease them a little bit, like, Maggie and Daniel, you're going to get married, and they would be so mad. But they were just best friends. Every year, survivors of the shooting faced new reminders of the gun violence epidemic in America. Camille Paradis is another former Sandy Hook student. It took her years to realize she wanted to get involved in activism. She says she had to grow up a little bit. We were kids. Like, we were little, little kids. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. She says she was inspired by activism from survivors of the 2018 shooting in Parkland, Florida. And I think it made me realize when all these other teenagers were standing up and being angry, that was the first time I was really, really angry, and that anger pushed me. Camille Paradis and Maggie Labanca joined the Junior Newtown Action Alliance. It's the high school wing of a group in Newtown that advocates for tougher laws to prevent gun violence. Daniel Barden's older sister, Natalie, was co-chair. Maggie says that's one reason she joined. And I thought, you know, she lost her brother, and if she's doing all this work, like, I can help. And I felt very tied to the cause because I've always loved the Bardens, and Daniel was my best friend growing up. Natalie Barden was in middle school when her brother died. She says she doesn't know if Maggie would consider her a mentor. I felt very protective of her because I knew that she was very closely related to the shooting. You know, she was in the school. She had heard things. She lost her best friend. She was very close with our family. And I knew that it was very hard to talk about that kind of thing and to be involved in activism. Every December, the Newtown Action Alliance and other advocacy groups hold a vigil in Washington, D.C. to mark another year since the shooting. Camille was one of those who spoke last year. She stepped up to the podium in a black shirt that read, End Gun Violence. At eight years old, I didn't have the language to describe what happened to me and my classmates. Thank you to everyone in this room for fighting who those who no longer can or haven't grown up enough to be able to. I'm forever grateful. Maggie LaBanca remembered meeting another survivor of a mass shooting from California at that vigil. You just felt so comfortable with someone that understood you and wasn't saying, oh, I'm sorry, that must have been so terrible, and I wish that I didn't have that connection with her, but it's also very comforting to know that you're not alone in this experience. Right before Maggie and Camille graduated high school this year came the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. A week later, Maggie helped organize a national gun violence protest in Newtown. But she says she didn't want to have to be there. I don't want to do this. I just want to go to school, and I'd like to be here with my friend. But he's not here anymore, and 25 other people aren't here anymore, and thousands of people aren't here anymore, and there needs to be change. So if that requires me to keep working, then I'll keep doing that whatever way I have to. Ten years after the killings, Maggie and her friend Camille are now college freshmen, and they say they'll keep working. For NPR News, I'm Davis Donovan. Davis Donovan is host of the podcast Still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. TV and film composer Angelo Badalamenti has died. He was at his home in New Jersey, surrounded by family. Badalamenti started composing on the piano when he was 10 and went on to study at the Manhattan School of Music. He wrote songs for Nina Simone and scored crime movies. 
1985, he was introduced to the esteemed filmmaker David Lynch. Badalamenti went on to score five of Lynch's films, but he was perhaps best known for his music in the cult favorite 90s TV drama Twin Peaks, also created by Lynch. In a documentary about the creation of Twin Peaks, Badalamenti described his creative process, specifically in writing the theme for the mysterious character Laura Palmer. He sat at a piano with Lynch and listened to him describe his vision for the show and turned that vision into sound. And David would say, okay, Angelo, we're in a dark woods and there's a soft wind blowing through some sycamore trees and there's a moon out and there's some animal sounds in the background and you can hear the hoot of an owl and you're in the dark woods, you know, just, just get me into that beautiful darkness with the soft wind and I started playing. Lynch asked him to slow it down. And I'd say, slow it, David? Okay. And I'd go. He says, that's it. That's a good tempo. Just keep it Keep going, going Lynch said. Like keep going. Still in the forest. Then he would say, okay, Angelo, now we got to make a change because from behind a tree in the back of the woods, there's this very lonely girl. Her name is Laura Palmer. And it's very sad, but get something that matches her. And, and, I, and I just segued into this. And he'd say, well, that's it. It's very beautiful. I could see her. And she's walking towards the camera, and she's coming closer. Just keep building it. Just keep building it. And she's getting close. Now reach some kind of climax. And I would go, and he said, oh, that's it. Oh, that's so beautiful. Angelo, oh, that's tearing my heart out. I love that. Just keep that going. Now she's starting to leave. So fall down. Keep falling. Keep falling. After Badalamenti stopped playing. David got up and gave me a big hug. He said, Angelo, that's Twin Peaks. I said, okay, David, I'll go home and I'll work on it. He said, Angelo, don't do a thing and don't change a signal note. Angelo Badalamenti died Sunday. He was 85 years old. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org, 34 degrees in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on All Things Considered, why Tunisia's democratic gains appear to be slipping away. That's next here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new Martin acoustic guitars. Because every instrument has a story. 
You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow was down four-tenths of a percent to close at 33,966. The S&P 500 fell six-tenths of a percent, closing at 39.95. And NASDAQ was off three-quarters of a percent, ending the day at 11,171. In business news, New Hampshire has joined a multi-state settlement with Walmart related to the opioid crisis. The settlement resolves allegations the company failed to appropriately oversee dispensing of opioids. The state is expected to get $15.5 million over the next year to fund recovery services. The New Hampshire Attorney General is still considering whether or not to join a similar national settlement with CVS and Walgreens. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The highs around 41. Rainy and breezy on Friday, high 47 degrees. Right now it's 34 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Almost 12 years ago, Tunisians overthrew an autocrat and began building a democracy. But today, rights groups worry that Tunisia is throwing out those gains and heading back to autocracy. This weekend's parliamentary elections could cement that fate. Morning Edition host Leila Fadel returned to the place where Tunisia's revolution began to understand how the country got to this point. So we're in Sidi Bouzid now. Yeah, let's read this is central Sidi Bouzid? This is the center of Sidi Bouzid. That's the portrait of uh, Mohamed Bazizi on the wall over there. That's our Tunisian producer, Shelby Ben-Brahim, pointing out a portrait of Mohamed Bazizi that covers the facade of a building. He's the street vendor who set himself on fire in front of the governor's office on December 17, 2010, after a police officer confiscated his fruit cart. The story goes that before he doused himself in gasoline, he asked, how do you expect me to make a living? His desperate act started a revolution that overthrew a dictator. That, that is the exact location here. Right in the middle of the street. Right in the middle of the street in front of the door. Everything started right here. And now maybe everything is destroyed also. The main memorial is erected in a traffic circle called Martyr Square. There's a giant beige replica of the cart taken from him. It's emblazoned with black graffiti. The date Brazizi set himself on fire, and another date, October 13, 2019. That's the date Qais was elected, and there it is written, Ashab Yurid, which is Qais slogan. That shows how much hope people had in Qais The political outsider, a retired law professor who ran for president on an anti-corruption platform and won the election by a landslide. 
People hoped he'd break the political paralysis, the infighting in parliament, and eradicate corruption in the midst of an economic crisis made worse by the pandemic. There's, there's another thing I have to show you. Yeah. Here it says, Museum of the Revolution. Mm -hmm. And it has been inaugurated in 2013, but it's just an empty yard inside. Nothing has been done since. So when people in Sidi Bouzid say that they feel neglected by the government, this shows it. Today, Sidi Bouzid is still one of the poorest governorates in the country, and unemployment has crept up over the last decade, not just here, but across the country. Tunisia is in a socioeconomic crisis that threatens to bankrupt public institutions. It's only deepened by the war in Ukraine, food shortages, soaring energy prices, and rising inflation. Now, Saeed's wild popularity is waning. In a town on the outskirts of the city, we meet with Wasim Shday. He leads the province's unemployment association. He takes us to his sister's house for lunch. At 31, like those he tries to help, he can't afford his own home, and he's still single. It's all connected. I mean, to get married, you need to have a fixed income, you need to have a house, you need to be capable of spending on your families. There's none of this. Um, I have the degree of sports teacher, but I'm unemployed. How long have you been unemployed? 11 years. Thinking about what you wanted in 2011, has any of it become a reality in 2022? I don't want to say that the situation was better before, but reality is that the situation has got much worse, especially for the youth. We are hopeless, we lost hope. There's nothing in the horizon. You know, Tunisia was talked about for the longest time as the bright spot of the uprisings across the Middle East and North Africa, the place where democracy was being built in a real way. But in the last year, people talk about democracy being dead in Tunisia. It's true that Tunisia is the starting point of the they called Arab Spring. I mean, everything started here, and Tunisia had have taken few steps towards democracy and uh, democratic uh, transitions. And then we cannot talk about democracy anymore after what happened on July 25th. On July 25th, 2021, the Tunisian president dissolved the elected parliament and assumed its powers. There was a mixture between happiness and fear. Fear because we didn't know where are we going. And the happiness was? Because of uh, this change. At first, like today, most Tunisians were relieved for the parliament to go. It was paralyzed by infighting and unable to solve the socioeconomic crisis. But then Saeed started to sack government ministers, governors, judges, and replace them with loyalists. He suspended the 2014 post-revolution constitution and then replaced it by referendum, and he implemented laws to suppress his critics. We understood then that we are going into uh, a dictatorship. We had a fear of losing the liberty and freedom that was our only gain since 2011. He wanted change, yes, but he didn't want to throw out democracy. And that, he says, is what is happening. The slogan of the revolution was work, dignity, and freedom. Do you have work? No. Do you have freedom? No. Do you no. have dignity? No. 
Wasim Jade is boycotting the election. He says he won't co-sign Saeed's power grab. Back in the center of Sidi Bouzid, Iman Gharbi tries to find cheap winter coats for her two children at a used clothes stand. Her husband is out of work, and she's sick with cancer. You, can, you cannot even think about how to make money. Now you, all you think about is how to eat. But she doesn't blame the president. She blames the years of bad leadership that came before him. We have big hopes in our president. We expect him to change things, but people around him don't want him to make change. They're trying to get us hungry, as hungry as possible, so that we get mad at him and tell him to leave. What do you want him to change? A lot of people study it and have degrees and don't get work, but those who have money, they pay a bribe and get to work. So we want them to fight corruption. And then what do you say to people who say he's not democratic, he's putting all the power in his hand? No, I think he is very democratic and he's fighting for the poor ones. And those who claim that he's not democratic are the ones who don't want good stuff for Tunisia. She's voting this weekend. We leave Gharbi and head to a cafe nearby. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Hello. What's your name? My name is Wazdinizi. He's sitting with his friend Bahaeddin and Siri. They're both in their 20s, they're both unemployed, and they're both not voting. Naji describes their life in one repeated sentence. Wake up, smoke, get drunk, sleep. Wake up, smoke, get drunk, sleep. What's our life? It's either we think about migrating illegally or about smuggling some stuff to sell it here into the country, and that's it. They say since the revolution, politicians have brought them none of the promises of a better life. And that question that Barazizi asked on the day he set himself on fire all those years ago, how do you expect me to make a living? It's still the question so many people ask in his city and his country. That was Morning Edition host Layla Fadal reporting from Tunisia. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, the World Cup finals are set after France beat Morocco in the semifinal today. France plays Argentina on Sunday. That's ahead here on WBUR. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The highs around 41. Right now, 34 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Now that the battles are playing out not in federal courts, not at the Supreme Court, but on the state level, the rules of the game are different. And everyone thought that shifting the battle on abortion to the states would help anti-abortion groups. But in fact, what we're seeing is that abortion rights groups are starting to rack up victories in the states. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
Two years ago, the very first COVID-19 vaccination was administered in New York, and critical care nurse Sandra Lindsay received the first shot. As NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin reports, two years later, Lindsay is still feeling hopeful. The photograph of Sandra Lindsay receiving that first vaccine has become so famous, she says when she's at the grocery store, people still stop her. Just saying thank you. You are courageous, and so we felt courageous, and we felt inspired to go ahead and get vaccinated. COVID is now surging again, along with flu and RSV, and booster rates are low, including among the elderly, who are at higher risk for severe infection. Lindsay, who now does public health advocacy at Northwell Health, encourages people to protect each other. If you're going to see grandma over the holidays, she says, make sure grandma is boosted and everyone who's visiting her is, too. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. President Biden told dozens of African leaders gathered at the White House today the U.S. is committed to supporting every aspect of Africa's future growth. Biden is pitching the U.S. as a reliable partner to promote democratic elections that will be happening on the African continent next year. Biden told the crowd the $55 billion the U.S. is committing to put toward growing health care, infrastructure and technology in Africa is just the beginning. Trade runs on reliable infrastructure to support and secure resilient supply chains. And improving Africa's infrastructure is essential to our vision of building a stronger global economy that can better withstand the kinds of shocks that we've seen in the past few years. Africa has become a key battleground in a fraught competition between the U.S. and China to help modernize the continent, with Beijing investing heavily, outpacing the U.S. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston City Council voted unanimously today in favor of creating a commission to study reparations for African Americans. Councilor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson has helped lead the effort to establish the task force. She says the specter of slavery still drives racial inequalities in the city. Predominantly black Roxbury has the highest percentage of people making less than 15000 per year. So yes, we need reparations for black people in Boston, for people directly connected to these harms. The proposal to create the commission now goes to the desk of Mayor Michelle Wu. Massachusetts residents will get a chance to weigh in on a controversial natural gas pipeline project in Springfield at tonight's Energy Facilities Siting Board meeting. The company proposing the project, Eversource, says it's necessary for gas reliability. But as WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, many in the community say any benefits are vastly outweighed by the negative climate and health impacts. At tonight's hearing, project opponents say they intend to make a few things clear. First, they don't believe this new pipeline is actually needed. And second, because of the climate crisis, they say the state should not be considering any new fossil fuel infrastructure especially infrastructure cited in environmental justice neighborhoods. Naya Tenerowitz is with the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. This is a way for Eversource to entrench reliance and income on fossil fuel infrastructure. A recent clean energy report commissioned by the state said Massachusetts should avoid building new gas infrastructure and instead invest in climate-friendly energy solutions. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey wants to boost mental health funding in the fight to adapt to climate change. Today, he introduced a bill to allocate $30 million to fund community-based mental health programs. There would be an emphasis on communities most affected by climate change. Markey says a growing mental health crisis in America is partly due to rising temperatures, extreme weather events, and natural disasters. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The low's around 29 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with a slight chance of rain in the afternoon. The high around 41. Rainy and breezy on Friday, a high 47 degrees. The rain should give way to partly sunny skies on Saturday. The high around 43. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Congress is again getting down to the wire on passing a funding measure to avert a government shutdown this week. Today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer warned colleagues that now is not the time for political games. The experiences of the last decades show that those who risk shutdowns in order to make political points always lose in the end. It's part of a critical to-do list that also includes the end of the Democratic-led probe into the January 6th attack. And it's all happening as Congress heads into a new era of divided government. Joining us from Capitol Hill is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hey there. Hey, Juana. So, Claudia, Friday is the deadline for Congress to pass a bill to avert a government shutdown. Where do things stand now? Right. They are expected to pass a temporary funding measure by the end of the week that would extend that deadline to next Friday, December 23rd. And by then, congressional leaders hope to pass a permanent measure to fund the government for the next year. But for now, they've announced a deal on a framework. But we still don't have a top line number for this deal or, for that matter, any tax. But there is opposition to this larger spending plan. For example, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy today slammed Democrats for trying to rush through this massive spending bill. And now they want to jam the American public in exactly what they want to do. They want to raise the spending, bring more inflation, create more wokeism in the legislation they want to pass through it, and not even give members an opportunity to read it or see it. And we should note there's many bills dependent on this larger spending plan for money, including the annual defense bill and aid to Ukraine. Okay, and you know better than I do, Congress is not set to be in for many more days this year. So what does this mean for what else can be passed by the end of the year? Right. It's a very tight timeline. So members hope this permanent funding measure, which could be one of the last trains leaving the station here, could carry one piece of key legislation. And that's reforms to the Electoral Count Act, which would safeguard future presidential elections. 
The House Select January 6th committee is also set to wrap up their probe soon. What's left for them? Right, so they're expecting to hold their last public meeting on Monday. They would announce and vote on criminal referrals and make other recommendations as well. One major area of focus is criminal referrals for former President Trump, and they could also issue referrals for the House Ethics Committee in terms of complaints against other members who were tied to the January 6th attack, and also seek to see disciplinary action against lawyers tied to the plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Now, we should note Congress can't prosecute crimes, but they can make a formal request in the form of a formal letter to various entities asking them to pursue these concerns. The panel could share new evidence to support these claims. Also, they're expected to share their final report next week. Now, this is all part of a race for Democrats to wrap up their business before Republicans take over the House. You talked about Kevin McCarthy's remarks on spending concerns today, and this comes as he is vying to be the next Speaker of the House. Where is that effort now? Yes, he declined to talk about those plans during a press conference today, but my colleague Deirdre Walsh talked to one of his supporters. This is Republican Nancy Mace of South Carolina, who talked about this new campaign or slogan for him called Only Kevin or OK. The theme of our meeting is, is only Kevin. He's in it for the long haul. He's been with many of us that represent swing districts and had to fight to get here, and we're going to you know, fight for him to be speaker. But that said, McCarthy still doesn't have the votes to become speaker with a tight margin in the House come next year. So that's leaving plenty of questions for how this speakership election will play out on the House floor next year on January 3rd. That's NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you. Thank you. France is heading back to the World Cup final after beating Morocco 2-0 in the semifinal today. It was Morocco's first defeat in the tournament and ended a dream run for a team that broke barriers. For France, the win sets up a match against Argentina on Sunday, and if France wins that, it would become the first back-to-back champion in 60 years. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman joins us once again from Doha. Hey, Tom. Hey there, World Cup buddy. Another day, another stadium, and another (laughs) thrilling match. What happened? Well, France asserted its dominance very early with a goal in the fifth minute and continued to push and dominate uh, most of the of the half until about the last 10 minutes. And that's when Morocco turned the tide and became the aggressor. And from then through a good portion of the second half, Morocco regularly surged toward the French goal, had a number of really good scoring chances. I mean, point blank. But France's defense was magnificent in repelling everything. Then in the 79th minute, uh, France, scored another goal. That was the clincher. You know, Ari, Morocco had roared through this tournament handling some of the top European national teams, but in the end, they couldn't handle France, which is the best. Morocco really was a fan favorite, getting huge support from people across Africa, throughout the Arab world. What was the reaction in the stadium like? You know, attendance here at Albait Stadium was over 68,000, and seriously, I would say 75% of the crowd was from Morocco. And at the end, many cried, uh, but at the same time, they cheered hard for their vanquished heroes who, who gave these fans and so many outside of Qatar such pride with this historic run at the first Middle Eastern World Cup. Well, you're going to have a few days to look ahead to Sunday. Give us a preview. What are you expecting? <laughs> well, there there certainly are X's and O's to pour over in the next several days to figure out who has advantages where. Not sure I'll do that, but I might. Um, but really, Ari, that is too wonky for right yeah, go now. Go do Falconry right instead in- or something. <laughs> 
<laughs> right now the headline is France trying to become the first back-to-back -back champ since Brazil in 1962 and Argentina going for star forward Lionel Messi's first World Cup title ever epic showdown and you've got the subplot although not too sub of Messi and France's Kylian Mbappe being tied for the goal scoring lead going in they are the stars of their respective teams Messi is a generational player Mbappe has the potential to be a next generation generational player it's going to be fun all right, there's also this tragedy that we have been talking about, which was the sudden death of American soccer journalist Grant Wall. And today I understand there was news about the circumstances surrounding his death. What, what have we learned? Yeah, that's right. Um, Dr. Celine Gounder, his widow and a prominent infectious disease expert, uh, said after his autopsy, it was determined Grant Wall died of an aortic aneurysm. Um, uh, she said his death was not due to nefarious actions. There were rumors that he'd been killed because he wrote critically about Qatar and FIFA. Well, Ari, a lot of people have done that, and it was always kind of a stretch. Also, sadly today, it was announced a Kenyan security guard at Lucille Stadium, site of Wall's death, died after a reported fall while on duty over the weekend. And in announcing his death, um, Qatari officials said, we will ensure his family receives all outstanding dues and monies owed. Now, that kind of compensation remains a point of contention in the ongoing criticism of migrant worker treatment here. Rights groups continue to Qatar and FIFA to create a compensation fund for families, the many migrant workers who've been adversely affected, and uh, that issue still is unresolved. NPR's Tom Goldman in Doha, Qatar. Thanks a lot, and enjoy the final game. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Survivors of the shooting at a queer nightclub in Colorado last month testified before Congress today. The hearing was called by a New York congresswoman who says violence against LGBTQ people is rising because of dangerous rhetoric. Colorado Public Radio's Caitlin Kim reports. Sitting behind an opposing oak desk facing members of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, 25-year-old Michael Anderson recalled working behind the bar at Club Q when he heard the sound of gunfire. I can still hear the rapid firing of bullets today. It's a sound I may never forget. It's a sound I hope no one here or anywhere else in this country has to hear. He recounted how he panicked, how he prayed, and finally how he said goodbye to a friend who lay dying on the ground. I say all of this not because it's easy to do so, but because it's important to do so. It was a plea to lawmakers to do something about what led to the violence that night. The suspected shooter has been charged with 40 counts of hate crimes. Anderson didn't hold back his frustration or anger. To the politicians and activists who accuse LGBTQ people of grooming children and being abusers, shame on you. Committee Chair Representative Carolyn Maloney, a New York Democrat, sees the Club Q attack as part of a broader trend of violence and intimidation. She says that includes a rise in anti-LGBTQ bills in state houses and in Congress, introduced mainly by Republicans. These hateful pieces of legislation have fueled dangerous rise in extreme anti-LGBTQI rhetoric, 
Representative James Comer of Kentucky, the ranking Republican on the committee, denounced violence in all forms, but pointed the finger back at Democrats. This is not an oversight hearing. This is a blame Republicans so we don't have to take responsibility for our own defund the police and soft on crime policies. Matthew Haynes, who founded Club Q over 20 years ago, says it's clear to him that his club was targeted. For all the loving thoughts and prayers set in the aftermath of the mass shooting, Haynes also got hateful ones, which he read to the committee. And so I ask you today, not simply, what are you doing to safeguard LGBTQ Americans, but rather, what are you or other leaders doing to make America unsafe for LGBTQ people? He told the committee that the community needs the support of leaders like them now. So did James Lowe, who was shot along with his boyfriend and his sister at Club Q. And he said that night was one of his biggest fears come true. Rhetoric leading to violence. Hate starts with speech. The hateful rhetoric you've heard from elected leaders in the, is the direct cause of the horrific shooting at Club Q. We need elected leaders to demonstrate language that reflects love and understanding, not hate and fear. The somberness and solemnness of testifying in front of Congress was a noted contrast to the celebration they all felt yesterday afternoon. The three men who testified were at the White House for the signing of the Respect for Marriage Act. Again, Michael Anderson. It's about balancing the joy of the celebration of yesterday with the uh, passion and anger for fighting for change today. So. Are you hopeful? Do you think um, anything gets done? Well, I'm not going to shut up until it does get done. So uh, I hope they listen sooner rather than later. In all likelihood, it will be later. This was the last full committee hearing before the new Congress is sworn in in January, so no legislation is likely to come out of the hearing. Control of the House switches from Democrats to Republicans, also dimming the chances for change. For NPR News, I'm Caitlin Kim at the Capitol. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 33 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on All Things Considered, writer Stephen Cha talks about one of his favorite authors and book, Raymond Chandler and the Long Goodbye. That's ahead here on WBUR. New on WBUR's Last Scene podcast, a three-part series about an unsolved homicide in Boston's Haitian community and a family's search for truth. Listen to and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In the forecast, it'll be partly cloudy tonight. The low is around 29 degrees, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Slight chance of some rain in the afternoon. The high is 41. It'll be rainy and breezy on Friday. The high around 47 degrees. Right now, 33 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at globesanta.org. A brass band and food stalls decorated like gingerbread houses. Some of the joys that are German Christmas markets this time of year. When it starts to snow and gets cold and dark, these markets lift my mood. 
A visit to the Charlottenburg Palace Weihnachtsmarkt in Berlin tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Today, we're talking to one of our favorite novelists about one of their all-time favorite books. Author Steph Chaw published Your House Will Pay in 2019. That book was inspired in part by the crime novel. And nobody holds higher court in that genre than Raymond Chandler, who's the author of The Big Sleep, and who also wrote one of Steph Chaw's favorite novels, The Long Goodbye. Here to tell us more about why this crime fiction classic stays with her and how it inspired her own work is Steph Shaw. Hey, Steph. Hey. Hey. I'm so happy to be here talking about Raymond Chandler. <laughs> so awesome to have you here. So, you know, like the idea for this whole series we're doing is to take a closer look at all the books that authors always find themselves returning to. I have never read The Long Goodbye, but I can't wait to hear you talk about it. What is it about? We find Philip Marlowe, who's a private investigator. He's kind of the quintessential L.A. private eye, you know, definitive of the L.A. noir genre. He involves himself with a married couple with a lot of problems. The husband is an alcoholic writer, uh, much like Raymond Chandler was himself, Mm -hmm. um, as well as a drinking buddy of uh, Philip Marlowe's, who he ends up liking and trusting, you know, which is something that he doesn't really do in his other books. You know, so I think of this one as the one where Philip Marlowe gets his heart broken. Um, And I I think for that reason, it has a really strong lasting resonance for me. Yeah. Like what about that story, the way it was written, made you fall in love with it? Philip Marlowe is this idealist, you know, that I think is what makes him an interesting character to me. He works in this world that's really awful and corrupt and yet he's always looking for something redeeming in it but in this book he really kind of opens himself up in a way that he doesn't in the others only to be betrayed and yanked around and it's depressing it's juicy it gives us a really great view onto both his tarnished heart and the rot in L.A. in the, the rot? I guess this book came out in the 1950s. Yeah, he he writes Dang, about you how like dark. L.A. is this rotten place. <laughs> <laughs> is there a passage that you've thought about more than others, like one that distills that rot in L.A. that moves you so deeply, Steph? Yes, there's a great passage towards the end of the book that is one of the best pieces of writing that exists about L.A. Um, I'll, I'll read it. Yeah. When I got home, I mixed a stiff one and stood by the open window in the living room and sipped it and listened to the groundswell of the traffic on Laurel Canyon Boulevard and looked at the glare of the big, angry city hanging over the shoulder of the hills through which the boulevard had been cut. Far off, the banshee wail of police or fire sirens rose and fell, never for very long completely silent. 24 hours a day, somebody is running. Somebody else is trying to catch him. Out there in the night of a thousand crimes, people were dying, being maimed, cut by flying glass, crushed against steering wheels or under heavy tires. People were being beaten, robbed, strangled, raped, and murdered. People were hungry, sick, bored, desperate with loneliness or remorse or fear, angry, cruel, feverish, shaken by sobs. 
a city no worse than others, a city rich and vigorous and full of pride, a city lost and beaten and full of emptiness. It all depends on where you sit and what your own private score is. I didn't have one. I didn't care. I finished the drink and went to bed. Wow. Isn't that great? <laughs> I mean, it's great. It's movingly bleak. It's so funny because a lot of people, when they hear, oh, you live in L.A., that's so nice. This is a completely different version of L.A. Why does that version capture you so deeply? You know, I love L.A., so I love Chandler because he writes about L.A., you know, I don't think Chandler loved L.A. in the same way that I do, to be to be honest. He wasn't a native. It was an extremely corrupt place. Um, and he wrote about it without any mercy. Um, and I write in that genre, you know. I write, yeah. I write crime novels that are critical of, of L.A. Um, but I also have a deep affection for it and a desire for it to be better. Well... As you mentioned, you are a crime writer, and I wonder, you know, it's probably hard to read books without a writer's eye. And when it comes to crime writing, the key is, I guess, like tension, mystery, momentum. What do you see in Chandler's mastery of those elements? You know, one thing I learned from The Long Goodbye is that plot matters, but it can be wild and messy and imperfect. In The Big Sleep, Chandler famously didn't know who committed one of the murders. As the writer? Yes. When The Big Sleep was being adapted for film, mm -hmm. um, he was asked who killed the chauffeur. And he didn't know. <laughs> and it's not clear from the book. He never really ties that up. And I think it doesn't matter. I don't That's know. That's so interesting. You would so, think the unveiling of the murderer would be the key to the end of any crime novel. Chandler is more, for me, about the mood he evokes, people will kind of buy what you're selling if you if you do it well. And that's something yeah. that I took away from him. You know, the best books, in my experience, it, they offer something new every time you read them. I am curious, like, has this book, The Long Goodbye, has its significance changed for you over your life as you reread and reread it? My relationship with Raymond Chandler has changed over the years. I still consider him one of my favorite authors. He used mm -hmm. to be the whole world of crime fiction for me, though. And uh, I started writing, actually, because I wanted to be in conversation with him. My first book, which came out almost 10 years ago now, it was a uh, L.A. Noir with the private investigator lead that explicitly grappled with Philip Marlowe, with that vision of L.A., you know, and, and kind of pushed against some of it. I always wanted to write and read a book about you know, the L.A. that I grew up in, which is contemporary and Korean-American. And um, and I also recognized, you know, even as I was reading him the first time around, that the way he talks about women, the way he talks about non-white people is not always, uh, you know, it's probably a little bit cancelable. Uh -huh. um, and so I wanted to kind of work against that. But, you know, I think um, I can't go back to the books without relearning just how good he is, you know, how lasting. And so, you know, has the meaning of this book changed? Yeah, I think it's a little different for me, for me now that I feel like I'm a writer too, you know. I, I've, I've now written several books. I can kind of read it like a writer. I'm, a, I'm able to see it clearly, and yet it, it still hits me right in the heart. 
I love it. I'm going to crack it open. The long goodbye. Author Steph Cha, this was so fun. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. Oh, yeah, this has been a complete pleasure. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Searchlight Pictures presenting Empire of Light, a new film directed by Sam Mendes starring Olivia Colman, Michael Ward, and Colin Firth about human connection and the magic of cinema, now playing in select theaters. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from Japigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solution for women and families. Japigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up on All Things Considered, remembering the victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting 10 years later. That's ahead here on WBUR. It'll be partly cloudy tonight, the lows around 29, mostly cloudy tomorrow, slight chance of rain in the afternoon, the high around 41 degrees. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I always go to a beach and just wander for a few hours and just reflect on Dylan and reflecting on who makes me smile and it also makes me cry. Each anniversary can be a tough day for the parents of the 21st graders who were killed in Newtown, Connecticut 10 years ago. It's Wednesday, December 14th. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on WBUR, remembering the victims of the shooting at Sandy Hook. Also ahead, saying the votes just are not there, Governor Baker withdraws his pardon request for Gerald Amaralt and his sister, Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. The pair had been convicted of child molestation at their family-run daycare nearly 40 years ago, but the methods used to obtain evidence against them have long been discredited. And the new mayor of Los Angeles has declared a state of emergency over the homelessness crisis in the city. The move gives her certain powers to speed the opening of shelters. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. The Federal Reserve is continuing its crackdown on high inflation, raising interest rates by another half percentage point. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. This was the Fed's seventh rate hike in the last nine months, and it pushed the benchmark borrowing rate, which was near zero in March, to just under four and a half percent. Rising interest rates make it more expensive to get a car loan, buy a house, or carry a balance on your credit card. The Fed hopes that will help tamp down demand and bring rising prices under control. On Tuesday, the Labor Department reported that consumer prices in November were up 7.1 percent from a year ago. That's the lowest annual inflation rate in 11 months, but it's still far above the central bank's 2 percent target. 
Today's rate hike was smaller than the previous four, but Fed officials stress that's not a sign they're any less committed to restoring price stability. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Florida legislators have passed a package of measures aimed at propping up the state's troubled property insurance market. NPR's Greg Allen tells us higher rates for many homeowners could be the result. Florida's property insurance market was already in trouble, and then Hurricane Ian hit. In recent months, a number of insurance companies operating in Florida have become insolvent or announced plans to leave the state. Republican lawmakers pushed through a plan to create a billion-dollar reinsurance fund to help the industry. It eliminates rate increase caps for Florida's state-backed insurance company, and it makes it harder for homeowners to sue their company. Paul Renner is Florida's Republican House Speaker. Today, we have fixed the property insurance market. That does not mean that tomorrow your insurance rates are going to go down. Democrats oppose the bill, saying instead of helping homeowners, it's an industry bailout. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. An autopsy has determined American soccer journalist Grant Wall died of an aortic aneurysm. NPR's Russell Lewis has details. Grant Wall collapsed during the Argentina-Netherlands quarterfinal match. Paramedics performed CPR and then took him to the hospital. His wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, said there was nothing nefarious about his death and no amount of CPR would have saved him from the burst blood vessel. Gounder spoke on CBS Mornings. I want people to remember him as this kind, generous person who was really dedicated to social justice. Uh, you know, I think that's another aspect of soccer that was really important to him. Wall is one of three journalists at the World Cup who died suddenly while covering the tournament. Russell Lewis, NPR News. France has advanced to soccer's World Cup final, beating Morocco 2-0, and will next face Argentina for the title on Sunday. 57% of Americans say it's been tough to afford holiday gifts this season, up from 40% last year. That according to a poll from the AP and Nork Center for Public Affairs Research. Wall Street, the Dow closed down 142 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A brother and sister convicted of molesting children at a Malden daycare back in the 1980s will not be granted a pardon. Governor Baker today withdrew his pardon petition for Gerald Amaralt and Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. Baker has cited a lack of support from the governor's council. Councilor Marilyn Devaney opposed the pardon, how the request was made, and how it was withdrawn. To pull a pardon, that's unacceptable. The other thing is, the whole thing about this coming out a few weeks before the end of the term of the governor is unacceptable. Baker had said that based on the tactics used by investigators when the abuse allegations were first made, he had serious doubts about the evidence used to convict the Emeralds. People who had accused the siblings told the governor's council yesterday they stand by their allegations. The attorney who represented the Emeralds says he is extremely disappointed with the governor's decision today. Deaths following a drug overdose are down slightly so far this year in Massachusetts. That's after they hit a record last year when 2,300 people died following an overdose. The state's public health commissioner, Margaret Cook, says while overdose deaths rate remain high, the crisis is not as bad here as in other states. It doesn't mean that we don't have even more work to do, but it is a reflection of all the efforts that are going into this crisis in Massachusetts. The state is spending $600 million this fiscal year on harm reduction and treatment. So, uh, advocates for people with substance use disorder say the numbers show a need for overdose prevention sites where health care workers intervene if a drug user stops breathing. 
With heating season underway, there is some relief for those in the state who heat with oil. The latest survey by the State Department of Energy Resources shows the average cost of home heating oil at $4.50 a gallon in Massachusetts. That's a drop of $0.34 a gallon from the last week. The price is still more than a dollar a gallon higher than it was this time last year. Officials with the Boston Finance Commission want the city to delay finalizing a new five-year contract for school transportation. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, they want the state inspector general's office to examine the bidding process. At issue is the fact the bus contract for Boston Public Schools only received one bid. Matt Cahill, the executive director of the Boston Finance Commission, says the school district's requirement that bidders have experience with three entities that are at least half the size of Boston Public Schools could have restricted competition. If there's an explanation as to why they chose that, then that would be great. But as of yet, we haven't heard an explanation. It just said, you know, we had consultants say this is what was best for us. I don't see how that's best for the city when you're eliminating competition. Boston school officials say the bid invitation was collaboratively written to ensure the school bus vendor is well positioned to meet the needs of Boston students. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. The governor is establishing a cybersecurity response team amid what he calls a growing number of cybersecurity incidents across the nation. The job of the newly anointed Massachusetts Cyber Incident Response Team will be to protect the state's technology networks and better respond to a cyber attack should one occur. The new team will be part of the Executive Office of Technology Services and Security. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight, the low around 29 degrees. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, slight chance of rain in the afternoon, a high of 41. Right now it's 33 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today marks 10 years since 21st grade students and six staff were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. It was a mass shooting that shook the country and inspired a renewed wave of activism. But rather than focus on that day as a singular event, we want to reflect on the lives of some of those who died that day, specifically four students whose parents shared with us how they want their children to be remembered. Jesse was nonstop. I feel like in my life, I am dragging a lot of people around behind me. I always have felt that. But Jesse was literally dragging me. It was pretty amazing. Charlotte just uh, kind of brought us out of our, I guess, our shells a little bit. For her sixth birthday, I asked her, I said, you know, Charlotte, you know, what would you like to do? Do you want to do you want a birthday party or do you want an experience? And she's like, oh, I want to experience, which is you know, so like her. <laughs> and so I said, what would you like to do? And she's like, I just want to go into New York City and walk around and see what's happening. She did a lot of living in those six years. Dylan was definitely the center of our family, you know, possibly because he was the youngest, um, but more likely because of his autism. He wanted to be part of something. So like if the kids were playing kickball, you know, we'd roll the ball to him and all the kids would be going, kick it, Dylan, kick it. He would kick it and then he'd kind of sit down and they'd be like, no, run to first base. And they would like run alongside with him. And he was just having the time of his life. Emily was a very spontaneous, fun-loving, creative being. 
and she could connect with people on their level for how young she was. It was really amazing. I remember one time we were at Costco and you're checking out and Emily's talking. And then I realized she was talking to the worker at Costco that was like helping scan things and stuff like that. And they were having a conversation and I realized this wasn't the first time they had met. Emily had like created this bond. They had talked before and she recognized her and they kind of picked up right where they had left off before. The day before she died, um, I had asked her, I said, Charlie, can I braid your hair? So um, I braided her hair and she went off to school and she came home that night and she's like, oh, mommy, one of the little girls in her class said, I looked so cute with my braids today. Will you braid my hair tomorrow? And I said, oh, I'd love to. You know, I was so excited because I'm like, well, she's not growing up too quickly. <laughs> and um, so that's one of the memories that I really hold on to is that the next morning I got to braid her hair again before she went off to school. I'd been working to get him to have a liquid multivitamin every day, and he really didn't like the taste. And that morning was the very first day he actually drank the entire dose of multivitamins. And he was so proud of himself. He had this horrible grimace on his face because of the taste, but he was also so proud and, you know, flapping. He jumped and flapped a lot when he was happy. Jesse's dad was picking him up at the end of the driveway. I walked Jesse out. I turned around to give Jesse a hug and I noticed that he had written in the frost on the side of my car, I love you. One of my last conversations with her, she was pointing to these flowers that we had painted on her wall. And she said, mom, this one's pink with a blue center and this one's blue with a pink center. Do you see it? And I was like, yeah. And she goes, mom, they're connected. There's connections everywhere. Everything is connected. And those words were incredibly powerful to me. And I, I've always remembered them. I think I'm almost in a little bit of shock that it's 10 years. It feels like it was so recent, you know, that he was just here and yet a decade's gone and I can't, I mean, I'm older, the people around me are older, and yet my boy is still six, and I can't, I can't connect the dots in my head. In some aspects, it seems like it was yesterday, and in others, it, it seems like it's been uh, a lifetime. The first few years, I, we would go to the cemetery, and um, I found myself not wanting, or not needing, I guess, maybe to go to the cemetery as often as I used to. I guess I feel her in different places than there. As grief kind of evolves, um, the way that we remember her has too. I always go to a beach and just wander for a few hours and just reflect on Dylan and, and you know, that reflecting on him makes him smile and it also makes me cry. The days leading up to the anniversary are awful. But your body has a funny way of saying enough is enough. And typically by the time that the anniversary rolls around, my body says it's enough. And I usually feel pretty numb that day. And that reprieve I look at now as a blessing. I used to be frustrated by it, 
but now I look at it as an opportunity. You know, Emily's on our mind all the time and we see her everywhere and feel her and... Um, having family around and being able to disconnect from the world. It really does just help kind of get us grounded back into what happened and what was lost and what we had and feel sad and feel happy and cry and laugh all at the same time and just hold all those emotions. And to think about our child's life is really what I want to do that day. And I'm grateful that I'm able to do it. There is a ritual that we have not been doing, and that is getting a tree. And uh, that might sound a little harsh for some people, but we had just put up our tree when Jesse was murdered. And I just couldn't find it within myself to do it again. But this year, we put up a tree. And we have plans to decorate the tree together. And so that's gonna be a beautiful thing. So we'll have a tree and this is a big, it's a big forward step for us as a family. That was Scarlett Lewis, the mother of Jesse, Alyssa and Robbie Parker, the parents of Emily, Nicole Hockley, the mother of Dylan, and Joanne Bacon, the mother of Charlotte. Bacon also serves as commissioner of the Sandy Hook Memorial that opened last month in Newtown. It's a granite fountain with each of the 26 victims' names etched in a circle. And she says she has a hope for visitors who stop to pay their respects. I hope that they walk in a circle and say each victim's name. There is a tendency when there's these mass shootings to talk about the Sandy Hook victims as a group, but they were all unique and individual, and they all deserve to be remembered. The victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting are Charlotte Bacon, Daniel Barden, Rachel Devino, Olivia Engel, Josephine Gay, Don Lafferty Hawksprung, Dylan Hockley, Madeline Shu. Katherine Hubbard, Chase Kowalski, Jesse Lewis, Anna Grace Marquez Green, James Mattioli, Grace McDonald, Anne Marie Murphy, Emily Parker, Jack Pinto, Noah Posner, Caroline Previty, Jessica Ricos, Aviel Richman, Lauren Russo, Mary Sherlock, Victoria Soto, Benjamin Wheeler, and Allison Wyatt. Alexander Ovechkin made hockey history last night. While playing the Chicago Blackhawks, the forward for the Washington Capitals scored his 800th goal. There's only three players in history who've scored 800 goals now, and Alex Ovechkin is one of them. That's Washington Post sports columnist Barry Sverluga. Last night's game also made Ovechkin the third highest scoring player in the sport's history. Number two is Gordie Howe, who retired at 801 goals. And this year's hockey season is young. 
Ovechkin could beat that record as soon as tomorrow night when the Caps play the Dallas Stars. Number one is Wayne Gretzky, beloved as the great one to hockey fans. Gretzky retired at 894 goals, but Sverluga says Ovechkin is also on track to beat that record. 894 just seemed like an outlandish total, but he has this knack for being able to put the puck past the goalie and find the back of the net, and he just gets thirstier and thirstier rather than falling off. Even at 37 years old, Ovechkin shows no sign of stopping. Sverluga says he's still averaging more goals per game than Gretzky did. The secrets to Ovechkin's success? Sverluga says it's his smarts for the game at a fast, dangerous shot. He has scored so many goals from the left face-off circle, and it just, you know, you almost can't see it. That area we've kind of labeled over the years as as Ovi's office because it's like he's in a Barcalandra over there just firing these missiles past goalies. That despite the fact that scoring goals has gotten harder since Gretzky retired over 20 years ago. In the 1990s, the score of a typical game might have been 5-4. to four. Now it's more like 3-2, to two, Sverluga says. Cool as these records are, for fans, nothing beats the sight of the great eight, Alex Ovechkin, kissing and hoisting the Stanley Cup above his head. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 33 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, Governor Charlie Baker has withdrawn his pardon request for a brother and sister convicted of child molestation nearly 40 years ago. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day lower. The Dow down four-tenths of a percent at 33,966. S&P fell six-tenths of a percent to close at 39.95. And the Nasdaq was off three-quarters of a percent to end the day at 11,171. In business news, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is filing a bill that aims to prevent cryptocurrency from being used to fund terrorism and other crimes. Warren says it's too easy for bad actors to launder stolen money by converting it to crypto. She says her legislation would force cryptocurrency exchanges to comply with regulations that already govern more traditional financial services and service entities like banks. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Now's the time to make your tax-deductible gift to WBUR for 2022. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It'll be partly cloudy tonight, the low around 29, mostly cloudy tomorrow. Chance of some rain in the afternoon, the high 41. WBUR supporters include Eversource. Eversource knows the role energy plays in life for you and your family. And because of that understanding, in times like these, they offer plans that can help this winter. To see if you qualify, you can visit Eversource.com. This is All Things Considered on WBUR. I'm Steve Brown. 
In a surprise move today, Governor Charlie Baker withdrew his recommendation for pardons in a controversial child sex abuse case that's been debated for decades. The governor's office announced that there was not enough support for the pardons of Gerald Amaralt and his sister, Cheryl Amaralt Lefebvre. The siblings were convicted of abusing children at their family's daycare in Malden back in the 1980s. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following the story and joins us now. Hey, Deb. Hi, Steve. So what did the governor's office say about this decision to no longer recommend pardons for the Emeralds? Well, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito read a statement at today's meeting of the governor's council, and she said the decision, the reversal really, was made after yesterday's lengthy governor's council hearing on the Emerald pardons. Following yesterday's hearing, it's apparent that there are not sufficient votes from the governor's council to support a a pardon for the Emeralds. Therefore, the governor is withdrawing his pardon petition. Now, the governor had recommended the pardons for the Emeralds last month, saying that he had doubts about the strength of the evidence on which the Emeralds were convicted. As you know, Steve, this case has been litigated for years, and the governor said he reviewed the previous legal rulings, and those raised questions about the techniques that were used to interview the children and whether the children's testimony had been manipulated. Mm -hmm. So how are the accusers and their families reacting to this about-face? Well, I spoke with two people uh, who testified before the governor's council yesterday, Brenda Hurley McCarthy said that her daughter, who is now 42 years old, has never recovered from being abused by the Emeralds at the Fells Acre Day School in Malden. Uh, Hurley McCarthy said a pardon would have sent a message that young abuse accusers can't be believed. Our children did not lie. They were not brainwashed. It was not overzealous prosecutors. They want everyone to believe they're innocent. They're not. I also talked with Jen Bennett, who was one of the children who testified against the Emeralds during their trial in the mid-1980s. She's now 44 years old, a mother of three. She called today's reversal by the governor a relief, but Bennett said she's still concerned that the families involved were not notified before Baker announced the pardons. I do thank them for doing the right thing, that I do got to say. I'm still very upset that it, it was handled wrong in the beginning, but they... They did do the right thing this time. So, Deb, what did the Emerald supporters say regarding this decision to withdraw the pardon request from the governor? Well, the Emerald's attorney, James Sultan, uh, said that the governor's decision is terribly disappointing. Finally, they thought they were actually going to get some justice and some relief, and instead they just got a rug pulled out from under them one final time. And it's just... It's sad and it's cruel. And Sultan said yesterday's hearing was one-sided in his opinion. He said it was clear most of the counselors were not going to support the pardons. And during today's meeting, after the pardon withdrawals were announced, Counselor Marilyn Devaney, who has said that a friend of hers is among the families who accused the Emeralds, she said she's not sympathetic that Gerald Emerald, who was called Tukey, uh, would continue to be on parole and wear an ankle bracelet to monitor his movements. The child victims live forever with the memories of the physical and mental pain, the sexual assaults and threats by Tukey. They're never forgotten. They live a life sentence. Now, did uh, the attorney for the Emerald say what uh, they will do now? Well, 
James Sultan said that the Amaralts are crushed, and he said it's not likely that they'll apply for clemency again. Gerald Amaralt's been out of prison since 2004. His parole is up next year. Both he and his sister Cheryl will continue to be required to register as sex offenders. Okay, WBUR's Deborah Becker, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. In Los Angeles, the city's new mayor, Karen Bass, has declared a state of emergency over homelessness. It's her first official act as city leader since being sworn in Sunday. I will not accept a homelessness crisis that afflicts more than 40,000 Angelinos and affects every one of us. It is a humanitarian crisis that takes the life of five people every day. Anna Scott covers housing for member station KCRW in Los Angeles. Hi, Anna. Hi, Ari. So this is a humanitarian crisis, but it's not a sudden or new crisis. What's the reasoning behind declaring a state of emergency? Part of this at this point is about making a statement. Bass wants to signal that she's willing to use the bully pulpit of her office, I think, to call for solutions to this crisis, which is definitely something that... The former mayor, Eric Garcetti, was criticized for not doing. Also, though, you just heard Bass say more than 40,000 people are experiencing homelessness in the city. She points out in her written declaration that that's more people than were displaced during the Northridge earthquake here in 1994. And the rate of people dying on the streets in L.A. has grown very dramatically over the last decade, a 200 percent increase. That's due to a number of things, including heart disease, overdoses from drugs like fentanyl and even homicide. So for all of those reasons, Bass is calling homelessness an emergency and L.A.'s city council members agree with her. They approved this declaration yesterday. Beyond the statement, what does it actually do? Like, And what are the limitations as well? Yeah, I will start with what it doesn't do, because that is more clear. It doesn't bring in any money, so L.A. is not going to get millions of dollars from FEMA like it would if there were a hurricane, for example. It doesn't mean the city is going to get an army of social workers or any new resources, really. But it does give Bass some power to lift red tape around things like building affordable housing and shelters or uh, investing in services and resources without going through a competitive bidding process like you would under normal circumstances. But we don't know yet how she plans to use these powers. And uh, one big question is how far she's going to go. Is she going to push projects through in different city council districts, for example, that maybe don't want new affordable housing or new shelters? Uh, that That was, again, a criticism of the previous mayor that he really let the 15 city council members each have their own approach to homelessness. So one thing I'm watching for is whether Bass is going to have a more unified strategy, which she has promised, and if these emergency powers are going to help her do that. What are you hearing from advocates for unhoused people in L.A.? How are they responding? A lot of people are taking a wait and see to see when more details come out, but I have definitely heard concerns that this could lead to a lot of enforcement against people camping on the streets, which might put them out of sight, but isn't going to solve homelessness. Because the truth is no mayor is going to fix LA's serious affordable housing shortage, which built up over decades in a year or even in an entire four-year term. And that lack of affordable housing is at the root of the homelessness crisis. So it makes some advocates nervous to hear big promises about cleaning up the streets quickly, because where are people going to go? Has the mayor said what her next step on this front is going to be? Yeah. So she is expected to come out any day with a more detailed plan on homelessness called Inside Safe. 
Um, we expect to see her lay out her whole strategy and how she's going to use these emergency powers. She did promise on the campaign trail to move about 17,000 people off the streets during her first year or so. Very tall order, and we'll see. That's housing reporter Anna Scott of member station KCRW. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. The Fed has raised interest rates again today. Marketplace is coming up next with all the day's business news. In the forecast, partly cloudy tonight. The lows around 29 degrees. It'll be mostly cloudy tomorrow. Slight chance of some rain in the afternoon, a high of 41. Rainy and breezy on Friday, the high 47 degrees. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.